We're in the book of Matthew. If you've been with us for any period of time, if you're new uh, to this whole deal, uh, right out on the table, there's some Bibles or maybe even in a, in a you know, um, chair in front of you. Uh, go ahead and grab one. But we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're continuing through that today. And I am, I am running low on hair jelly, so that's why I threw a... a <laughs> That's why I have a hat on today. Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to take verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. This is going to hurt a little. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that great? Uh, I'll be the first to say that um, for a long, 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 long period of my life, I read this part of my Bible wrong. I think it's possible that a lot of us have been taught to read the red letters in our Bible a certain way. And I I would venture to say that a lot of us have read a lot of what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount wrong. And this may be one of those areas. And the problem is that when we do, it will keep us from having a proper understanding of what Christianity is and what it isn't. What it is and what it isn't. And before you and I are are truly able to go to Jesus out of desperation and urgency for life and salvation, we must first come to this conclusion. You ready? We are much, much worse than we think we are. We are far worse than we think we are. And it doesn't help that we're part of a world and a system that tells us the exact opposite over and over again. But before we can really come to Jesus out of desperation and urgency for life and for salvation and for all those things that we lack that we desperately need, we must first know that and believe that we are far worse than we think we are. Uh, I think we can acknowledge that we've done wrong things. I think we can acknowledge that we've sinned in ways, right? That we've performed bad acts, but we're really good at playing it down. And, And what Jesus is going to do uh, in this section, is he's going to bury us. He's going to kill us. He's going to kill any thought of us being somewhat successful in our morality. He's going to kill any notion that we've um, failed some, yeah, but we've succeeded more, therefore, in the end, God is going to approve of me because we've tipped the scales, Right? He's going to kill any idea that our good works and our successes in law-keeping will keep us out of hell and get us into heaven. He's going to kill all that. 
What Jesus is going to do now is bury us in the grave of failure and condemnation in regards to our personal ability to be moral and upright before a holy God. Period. Are you ready? You guys don't sound ready. You guys should be super excited for what's in front of you. Uh, what I like to do, I don't know how you guys read your Bibles, but as, as a guy that, that preaches sometimes and, you know, exposits, um, it's, it's easy for me when I'm in a text to, um, it's helpful when I'm in a text to read the whole thing and then come up with one sentence that summarizes the heart of what it is that's being said. Okay. And so like sometimes I think you and I, we, we like studying, we like mining for gold and our Bible allows us to do that. The closer we look, the farther down we can go, the more God reveals. Like that's good stuff, that in-depth, uh, detailed surgical study. Um, but the truth is sometimes you and I can look so close at a tree that we forget what the actual portrait looks like. And so when we're going to actually exposit scripture and, and discover the original intent uh, the authorial intent of, of what's being um, said and what needs to be extracted and taken away first and foremost. It's nice sometimes just to stand back and make a sentence that, and so that's all I'm doing today. You guys have heard me do that before. Um, I, I have kind of a, a, a an alternative, uh, an alternate sentence that I've come up with um, on each of these verses that helps me kind of grasp what's being said here. Hopefully it's helpful and hopefully it's uh, accurate more than anything else. The first one is for verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. My sentence is this. Our perception of law-keeping is far different than Jesus' perfection in law-keeping. Our perception in law-keeping of law-keeping is different than Jesus' perfection in law-keeping. We tend to think that we know what it looks like to follow the law. Uh, but we, we really, we really don't primarily because we tend to look on the outside, that which is visible to base our conclusions and to base our evaluations on good law keeping. We don't typically consider or look at the inside. And I believe one reason that I know I don't do this is because it's tough to look at if we're honest. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot easier for me to, to, to do something outside of myself and go, that was pretty good. But as soon as I start to look and examine myself on the inside and look at the thoughts and the desires that are going in, and there, it's dark and it's harsh um, and it's simply not fun uh, to look at or to acknowledge or to be honest with. So a lot of times we don't. We just focus on the outside. I think another reason why maybe we have a problem with evaluating what's going on inside of us is our inability, our inability to truly understand what we're looking at. We, we do not, in our depravity, have the capability of accurately identifying sin for sin and holiness for holiness all the time. We're just not going to be accurate with it. The, the, the one thing that seems manageable to us in morality and law-keeping is the focus um, on our outside accomplishments. What we see and what others see. What we do and what others do. And, and this is what Jesus is going to pull the covers on today, like in large part. This is what he's looking to expose here. He begins with, do not think. Do not think. Now, why would he say that? Right? Why, why would he think that they might think uh, that, that he has come to throw away the law rather than to fulfill it? First off, we need to know who he's talking to, right? He is talking to us right here, right now, but when this actually went down in history... He wasn't talking to us right here, right now. He was talking to a real 
group of people that were present with him that day, right? And so who they were made up was, was, was of common Jews who were under the law at that time. And more than that, religious leaders, he's going to mention them in verse 20, scribes and Pharisees who specialized in policing the law. Okay, That's really who his immediate audience is. The self-proclaimed law keepers and law experts themselves were present that day. And, and because their idea of what it looked like to follow the law was different than what it actually was to follow and fulfill the law, Jesus is letting them know right up front, you're going to see me do some things while I'm here on earth with you. And you're gonna, you're gonna hear me say some things that, that look different and, and sound different, uh, than what you do and say. Okay? But don't mistake it for lawlessness. Don't mistake it for lawlessness. No, no, he, he knew full well that they were going to misinterpret every bit of what they saw him do and say. All of it. He, he would be constantly accused by them of not following the law going forward. He would heal on the Sabbath. So he'd be accused of breaking the Sabbath. He and his disciples would eat some grain out of a field that they didn't own. And so then they would be accused of being thieves, right? He would say crazy things to people like, your sins are forgiven you, <laughs> right? Which would make him equal to God. So they would accuse him of idolatry, blasphemy, breaking the first commandment, right? Thou shalt have no other God besides me. And they're going, that ain't you. It, it was it was constant, over and over and over again. On it would go through his entire earthly ministry. It seems that every time we turn around in the Gospels, these guys are hassling Jesus based on some kind of perceived violation of the law, according to them. According to them. They tried really hard to bury him as a lawbreaker. And who do you suppose was right? And who do you suppose was wrong every time? Stupid question, right? See, our, our perception of law-keeping is different than Jesus' perfection in law-keeping. That's why Jesus is saying, do not think. Do not think this way. Do not, do not doubt me. Don't doubt what you see me doing. It's not what you think it is. It's actually right. It's actually right. And, and all that to say, what Jesus is telling us clearly in verse 17, if you haven't picked it up yet, is that Jesus is, you ready? Pro-law. Jesus is pro-law. He is for the law. He is about the law. He's even more pro-law than the most pro-law dudes that were in front of him that day. And there were some pretty big-time pro-law guys that were there that day. He, he's even more pro-law than them. He wants everybody to know that right up front. He, I, I, I want to make sure that you and I know that right up front. Because I think a lot of us, again, have been misled and misthink in this area. Jesus is... Pro-law. He's pro-law. Um, he wants us to know that the, the good cop, bad cop thing, like, isn't true. Don't buy it. Right? I don't know if that's how you... I grew up in the church, and that, that was my uh, conclusion that I came to. Right? Old Testament, bad cop. New Testament, good cop. Right? Jeho Jehovah God, mean, big, angry. Right? Son of God, gentle, loving, kind. And so we have this Old Testament and this New Testament. A lot of times we, um, we parse unnecessarily who God is from cover to cover. Same, same, same one. There's one in three, right? So, so no, no good cop, bad cop when it comes to Jesus is saying, no, like God wasn't just mean or angry. Then like, I agree with the law. 
In fact, I've come to pay attention to every single aspect of it. That's actually why he was here, was to fulfill every bit of it. Jesus didn't disagree with or have a problem with or feel the need to ignore or trash or modify the law. Why? Well, because it's from him and it's about him. Before Abraham was, I am, right? When you, when you hear I am, what are you, what, where does your brain go? Mine goes to a burning bush where the law was given to one named Moses. And he says, who, who am I going to tell the people like I've been hanging out with? And he's like, I am. Like, like Jesus is claiming to be the voice that gave us the law, right? He, 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 he doesn't just mention the law here, but he also mentions what? The prophets. So what's he saying by uh, including the prophets, the law and the prophets? What does he mean by that? Well, the law, a.k.a. the, the Torah, refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, right? First five books of the Old Testament, while the prophets, to them, includes everything else. So, so between what they called the law, the first five books in their scriptures, which is, which is our Old Testament scriptures that we have, everything after those first five books was considered the prophets. You and I split everything into genres. We're like, you know, this is poetic book. This is a historical book. They had, they had two categories that made up what we have as our Old Testaments, the law and the prophets. So when he's saying the law and the prophets, He's saying, I've come to pay attention to and take and do business with every aspect of our scriptures, all of them, all of them. Right. Which, of course, at the time was our Old Testament scriptures. I have not come to ignore. I have not come to modify. I have not come to throw away any of our scriptures. I've come to fulfill all of the scriptures. So Jesus didn't come to replace the Old Testament with a better, more contemporary, new and improved, up-to-date testament because the first one stunk and God was mean, right? He, he came to uphold, to make good on all that's there because he's pro-law and pro-prophets right down to every last detail, which brings us to verse 18. Check this out. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one uh, iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, maybe my, my alternate sentence for this, uh, Jesus' law-keeping is thorough. His law-keeping is thorough. So he's, he starts off by saying, until heaven and earth pass away. Okay, Do you know what that means? It, it means... Oh, we need to hear this right now. It means that our scriptures never become outdated. Our scriptures never become outdated. They never become irrelevant. They never become old-fashioned. They never become washed up or primitive or out of touch. Or like one of my teenage kids said to me once when he was trying to justify his sin, on the wrong side of history. The Bible's never on the wrong side of history. The Bible's always on the right side of history. The reason there's history is because of God's spoken word. Because of what, what consists and remains as a result of God making it a reality and allowing it to sustain and move ahead, right? So our, our, our scriptures will never become outdated, in a sense, is what Jesus is saying here. By making the statement, he's saying all that is written in the scriptures is true, timely, trustworthy, relevant, and necessary today. 
today, right now, I don't care what part of history you live in, right? What the year is, they're relevant now. They're relevant today. They're going to be relevant tomorrow. They're going to be relevant next week, all the way until God closes the doors on world history. And so all that to say this. Do not apologize for your Bibles. Do not apologize for what God has said to you in his word. Because it's relevant and it's valuable and it's true and it's right and it matters today. Just as much as it ever has. Do not apologize for it. Don't don't cower in the face of the moment-to-moment pop thinking in an ever-changing pop culture. Don't do it. It will never stop evolving into new truths and new truths and new truths, which means that none of them were actually true. The Bible won't do that to you. Praise God. I love that. I love that we can trust this thing. I love that we can trust not our, not our celebrities of the day, not the newest trends or fads of the day. This can be stood upon. Don't be ashamed when the whole world is coming to new conclusions that sit in direct opposition to God's conclusions. Don't be ashamed with that. When they do, I promise you, he's not wrong. They are. If the world ever comes up with something that is in direct opposition to what God has declared in his word, he's always right. The opposing party is always wrong. It's just really easy. And I like easy things because I'm, I'm not smart. Like, oh, these things aren't adding up. This one's right. God is always right. I promise you. He's always right. Think about what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, this entire revelation, this thing that we call the Bible, is of ultimate importance, ultimate truth, and will be ultimately fulfilled. Ultimately fulfilled. Our scriptures are relevant for all people at all times, and they're to be taken seriously and carried out to the full. Now, Jesus says here, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's accomplished. The iota, a lot of you probably know, is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, right? The dot is the tiniest stroke or part of a letter in the Hebrew language that's used to differentiate between Hebrew letters. So like if we were to try to um, uh, make this relevant or, or understood by our language, if, if I went to, if I was writing a letter and I went to do a, a lowercase I and I, I, I drew the vertical line, but didn't dot it, what might that look like? Might look like an L, right? Same thing with a T. If I was to draw my vertical, but not cross, put the crossbar on it, might look like something else. I mean, this is, this is kind of what he's, he's talking about. And with us, it's even more important in our language with our punctuation, right? Like if we get our punctuation and stuff wrong, it can change everything. Like we live in a world where we text, right? We, we communicate more with other people, uh, by doing this rather than doing this, right? And so like it matters, uh, how that's done so that something really bad doesn't go down. So like a couple weeks ago, uh, me and Brent were, were hanging out and, uh, Chad had to, had to go home. He couldn't hang out. He couldn't come out and play, uh, with the guys. Um, he, he, so he had to go home to finish building a fence. And there was a point where we got a text from Chad that said, man, I, I'm tired. I'd really like to hang out right now. So I texted back, well, come over then. Well, W-E-L-L, come over then. Right? 
I didn't see the autocorrect, which put an apostrophe in there that said, we'll come over then. Right? So, so like me and Brent are sitting there and we're waiting and an hour goes by and two hours go by and three hours go by. It's like, what's up? And he's at home waiting and an hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like it matters. Like those little details matter. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to pay attention to every detail and I'm going to make sure that it's all in its right place for right understanding and then uh, working itself out in a right action. Right. He's talking about being thorough. He's talking about uh, interpreting properly and then living out properly that which has been given to us by God the way that God intended it rather than us playing with it and doing gymnastics with it and missing something here and missing a little thing there. Jesus is thorough with his law keeping. Absolutely thorough. All right. Where am I? Um, Jesus isn't saying this like the dot, the iota thing, obviously, to, to like be cute, right? To just take up space. Like he's actually saying this because of who he's talking to. Again, in verse 20. Namely, it's those guys that he mentions there. The Pharisees were a group of dudes that were sticklers for the law. The scribes were a group of dudes that were sticklers for accuracy, translation. They were notaries on major levels. So he's appealing to them right now by saying this. He's saying, don't, 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 don't question. Don't, don't worry. I'm accurate. Like uh, I promise I'm thorough. I will not disappoint. I will not cheat the details of what's been written. So uh, verse 18 assures us that Jesus, Jesus's law keeping is thorough. Number three, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of, of heaven, uh, junior, junior varsity. Uh, but whoever does then them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, varsity, right? Um, so uh, the sentence I came up with here for this is the, and you guys are going to think this is weird. Bear with me. There's only room for one at the top in the kingdom of heaven. And I know some of you are going to look at that and be like, I don't see that, dude. Like, where the heck did you get that? Just stick with me. There's only room for for one at the top in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I have a question. Actually, I have a couple questions I want to ask you guys. Please, please do not answer out loud. Um, Don't do it because I don't want to I don't want to shame you. I don't want to put you down publicly when you do. So just keep keep it to yourself. Uh, I did this last week. I asked these questions uh, down in Lapine, and I even said that. I said, do not just answer this to yourself. And one lady answered immediately out loud, and it was the wrong answer, and I had to shoot her down. So don't make me don't make me shoot you guys down. Okay, just keep this to yourself. It's a test for you between you and God. Does God question? Does God ask us in His Word to do things He knows we cannot do? Does, does God ever require things of us which he knows we cannot make good on? Does he ever demand actions, behaviors, and des- desires which he knows we cannot perform? And is he even willing to punish us for not being able to do that which he requires and knows we're unable to do? If you answered yes to all those questions, you passed your theological exam for the day. 
He most certainly does. He most certainly does require things of us that we are incapable of performing. And Jesus wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. To which our response may very likely be, well, that's just stupid, right? That's not a God I would worship. I don't know how many times I've, I've heard this, right, from, from non-believers and people when they start, you know, considering these things. Uh, like, what, would God ever tell us to do something we can't do? And it's like, well, what are you doing worshiping this God, right? Like, shouldn't that just take care of any of it, you know? That's just unfair, we might think. That's just completely unfair that he would do that, right? That makes God bad. Does it? Does it? Is it unfair or unjust or absurd for God to continue to require that which we are unable to do? Well, he, he does. See, see, God watched us spiritually self-destruct in the garden. From a state of righteousness to unrighteousness, and yet he holds the line of righteousness. He doesn't apologize for it. He holds that line. He, he didn't cancel it. Uh, he didn't draw up another, draw up another standard. He didn't lower the bar so it could be one that we could now reach in our sinful state. He, he held the line of what righteousness is. And it is, it is in this, it is in the, the holding of the standard that we have not the absurdity of the God of the Bible, as some would suggest, but the legitimacy of the God of the Bible. That God holds fast to require that which we are unable to do just adds further credence to who it is he claims to be and what it is he claims to be about. Not less, more. That God didn't get so bound out and bummed out in the fall of mankind that he threw away his apparent attributes in order to attempt to recover our debacle as a testament to both his character and his eternal nature. That's what it is. The truth is that by God holding to his standard of righteousness and holiness, regardless of our wandering and failing, is actually further proof of who and what he claims to be. Fully righteous and unchangeable. That's who he says he is. And we see that by him holding the line on righteousness, even though you and I fell away from the line, below the line. It's still what it is. It's still true. We have changed, right? You and I have changed. We have gone from innocent to sinful. He has not. He has not. We have shifted going from a nature of sinlessness to sinfulness. He has not. The standard is still the standard. The requirement is still the requirement. Righteousness is still righteousness. And falling short of it is still falling short of it. There is no compromise. This is why Jesus is not only not throwing away the law, but proclaiming and promoting it to its fullest. To its fullest. Full compliance is required still. Because righteousness is the same as it's ever been. The bar is good still. It is high still, but we are not. And therein lies the dilemma, right? That, that's the dilemma. It, it's funny. As Christians, I think I mentioned this earlier, that we can, we can come to the red letters um, and, and say, because Jesus said it, I can do it. Because Jesus said it, I, it's red letter, so it must be gospel. Right? This must be what Christianity looks like. This must be something I can, I can go and I can do. I must be able to live this way. Right? No, no, Jesus, listen, Jesus spoke law more powerfully, fully, condemningly than anyone anywhere else in the Bible 
And this is some of it that we're getting into here. This is some of it. Jesus knew how to speak strong law. And he's speaking strong law. Some of what we're about to get into here is the strongest law that we have in our entire Bibles because he takes it from an outside exercise to an inside cancer. So so what, here's what's going to happen. This is kind of the preamble. If some of you cheated and looked ahead, right, we're getting into those famous verses that are like, you heard it said, like, this is what anger looks like. But here's what anger actually is. It's murder, right? Uh, he does the same thing with lust. You think it's just this, but actually it's adultery. When you lust in your, in your heart, right? This is what we're talking about. This is the setup to those verses. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take our perception of the law and he's going to stretch it out to proportions that we cannot bear. That we cannot bear. And yet it's taught to us. And we come to all these red letters sometimes with the, the tendency, the belief that if Jesus said it, I can do it. Because he came to turn us loose, right? After all, he, he came to turn us loose from those old-fashioned legalisms. He's, he's, he's come to set us free. Therefore, all that he taught is the new way of life. And, and, the, and, and, and the response is yes. He did come to set us free. But before we can be set free, we must die. We must be crushed. Before we can be set free and, and, and come into abundant life and truly live, there needs to be a funeral of self and sin. And Jesus knows us better than anybody else because he's the architect. He's the one who set up the whole plan, the whole rescue mission of a fallen man who's gone astray. He knows exactly what we need. And it starts with the law. It starts with the law. All that to say, I know that was a huge rabbit trail. It's easy for us to read a verse like verse 19 and have the law keeper come out in us. That's what I'm getting at. It's easy for us to look at this verse and go, don't do this or you'll end up this way. Do this so you can end up this way. And we go, okay, cool, I'll do it. Right. It's easy for the law keeper to come out in us. We can easily read this and think, okay, there's going to be great people in the kingdom and there's going to be not so great people in the kingdom. And I want to be a great person in the kingdom. I want to be varsity, not junior varsity. Right. For eternity. And and, and according to what Jesus is telling me here, uh, in order to do that, I have to promote and perform uh, the law to be to be great. Uh, Cool. Christianity is just morality after all. I was hoping so. Right. He, he really just wants us to be good people after all, by what he's saying here. Uh, no, not at all. The question is, how good? Like, how, how good do you have to be to be great, to, to go from not so great to great in the kingdom? How good? How often? How well? How accurately? Right. How, how do we quantify this thing? Well, the Bible seems to hand us two categories when it comes to law-keeping. You ready? All and nothing. All and nothing. Everybody either falls into one of those categories or the other when it comes to law-keeping. The problem is that you and I all fall into the nothing category. right? Romans 3.23 Tells us really clearly, we all know this, probably have it memorized, all have sinned and fall short 
the glory of God. Glory could be synonymous there for righteousness, for standard. We all fell, fall short of that standard of righteousness, right? It means that we can never hit the mark, that we have not hit the mark, that we will not hit the mark on our own. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of... That doesn't seem fair. I mean, we did, we did a pretty good job. Like, kept a lot of it. Blew it. Fail. In all of it. So, so here's God's standard concerning the law. 100% perfection, 100% of the time. How are we doing? Right? 100% perfection, 100% of the time. Can you do it? Can you or anybody that you know be great in the kingdom of heaven according to God's standard of doing and teaching them? Spoiler alert, if you could, Jesus would not have had to come. He would not have had to come. He would never have said that thing that he said in the garden and then went through with what he went through, right? As he's sweating drops of blood, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way apart from what it is that I'm about to go do, let's do it. If we can find that one who's fulfilled the law, enough. Are they there? What did he do? Went to the cross. He proceeded to the cross. Why? Because there are none that exist or ever have or ever will that fully, completely fulfilled and taught the law. Right? It was him. And praise God, it was him. Having said all that, my conclusion on this verse is this. You ready? Gosh, that took a long time to get there. Here's my conclusion. Who will be the least in the kingdom of heaven? Everybody sitting in this room right now. Every single one of us. Who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Him. There's only room for one at the top. Him. Will you and I be jealous? Will we be envious? Will we have a problem with this? No. I don't, I don't think we will have a problem with this. I don't, I don't think we will be jealous or envious. We will be way too busy being blown away at the fact that we were ever allowed in to begin with. You know what I'm saying? What am I doing here? Is going to be your response. How was I ever allowed into a place like this? Do they know who I am? You know what I'm saying? And it's like, oh yeah, they know you better than you do. Yeah. But, but look at the one. Look at the one who's great. That's, that's why you're allowed in here, right? We're going to be too busy in awe and worship and wonder of our access point, our, our perfect law keeper, Jesus, when we get there. He's going to be the great one in the kingdom, and there's only room for one at the top in the Father's kingdom who is truly great. Verse 4, or sorry, verse 20, number 4, for I tell you, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in order to e- enter the kingdom of heaven, our law-keeping must be better than the best. Our law-keeping must be better than the best. So, so now we're not even talking about great and least in the kingdom of heaven. We're just talking about getting in. We're just talking about like, like who's going to be able to get into this place, Right? And, and, and this is where it's about to get real, real. Uh, you and I have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story, sitting here as a regenerated people, 
that cling day and night all day long to the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, right? We have the rest of the story. Imagine, imagine what these people sitting there that day thought when this came out of his mouth. I'll talk about burying somebody, crushing somebody. There was no group more committed, more dedicated, more immersed in, more passionate for, more determined to be, to, 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 to being more thorough, more accurate, more complete, the scribes, and performance driven, the Pharisees, than these groups were with the law. These guys were it. They were it. They literally ate and, and breathed and slept law, which means if we're to take Jesus at face value there, we, we must beat uh, the reigning champions of law-keeping to have a chance at getting in. We need to follow the law, do the law, perform the law, live out the law better than these guys did. And I don't know how much personal studies you've done on these guys, but it's pretty disastrously impressive the way they lived. We must outperform the kings of law keeping in order to gain access. It, it would basically like, it's kind of like would be the equivalent of telling your seven-year-old's like little league team that they had to go up against the 1927 Yankees and win, right? In, in order to like get into heaven, you know, it, like, it, like it's an impossibility, right? Murderers row, right? Crazy. And the most ridiculous part is that you and I can easily read this verse that Jesus makes and say, Okay, I'll do it. I can do that. And you can't. You can't. We can so easily think because Jesus told us to do it this way that we can and we can't. To think that we can perform that which Jesus puts forth here is spiritual suicide. It punches your ticket to hell. Because that's exactly what happened with these guys. They thought they had something they never had, and that was their downfall. You guys know the story. Right? I can do it, is what we want to say. No, you can't. Oh, yeah, watch. And then we try. So, so how in the world can our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Surrender. Surrender. It's admittance, it's confession, it's repentance, it's faith. It's all the things that the scribes and the Pharisees had no need for or found any value in because in their minds, they could do it. Surrender was not a thought to them. Like desperation was not a thought to them. Like laying themselves wide open and saying, what in the world am I going to do? Was not a thought to them. See, see, and they're being fully convinced that they could on their own be righteous. They remained unrighteous like that. That was their downfall, right? I can do it in their self-confidence that they could pull it off in their own, own way on their own terms. They ceased to look for it somewhere else. Does it sound familiar? Like Jesus would say things like that all the time. Are those who aren't sick? Like, do they need a doctor? Is someone who's not sick going to go to a doctor? This is, this is what he's saying. And these guys didn't think they were sick. What we've heard come out of Jesus' mouth here today is the preamble, like I said, to everything else uh, that's uh, about to come. And it's easy for us, I think, that we can, we can look at these guys and think, what a bunch of idiots. You know what I mean? Like we can either think like them and be like, I can do this, or we can look at them and be like, what a bunch of idiots, being so self-righteous, never acknowledging their hypocrisy and their failure. Right? And we need to be careful. 
because, but it not for the grace and mercy of God. That's you and me. That's you and me. This is our natural tendency is to say, give me something to do and I'll do it so that we can earn that which we enjoy. So here it is. Jesus is not saying you got this. You can do this. When you read this, hopefully, hopefully this is helpful. Don't ever read it like this again. He's not saying you got this. You can do this. That's not what he's saying when you read verse 20. When you read it, he's saying this is the standard and you cannot reach it. You cannot reach it. You can't do it. This is the price of admission. It's above your pay grade. This is the mark, and it's an impossibility that you will ever hit it. In other words, he's using the law to crush us. He's using the law to bury us, to condemn us, to lead us to despair. Why? So that we might feel the weight of our spiritual deficit and say, Oh, Lord, what must I do to be saved? That we may cry out with nowhere to go and no options. Lord, have mercy on me. What must I do to be saved? What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, he's actually crushing us so that we might come closer. That's what he's doing. He's killing us so that we will come closer. So that we might move from here to him. From here to him. There's a doctrinal category sometimes debated in theological circles that pertains to what's called the uses of the law. Anyone ever heard of this? The uses of the law. It's boring. I'll keep it short. Um, so, so basically, it's like if the law is, is bad for us in our sinful state, um, and it can't save us, if we can't, if we can't live it out, and it doesn't bring us anything, uh, any closer to God, like, why is it there? Like, what, what are the purposes? What's the intended purpose? Why did God give it to us if it can't, if it can't save us? What purpose does it serve? And there's different guys that run, some people run with, uh, two uses of the law. And all this is, is they go in, they study the, the law, um, in regards to where it's found and what it actually does. And then they just make observations and that's how they come up with it. Some people have found two uses of the law, uh, few, and they're wrong. Uh, there's, there's another group, only two people caught that, um, some people, yeah, there's, uh, most people believe there's three uses of the law in scripture. And then there's some people that will believe that there's four uses of the law. But I, I really like the, uh, Luther's catechism the best when he talks about the uses because I just like the way he thinks. He just, he just, uh, titles them really, really nice so that we can grab onto them and chew them. Uh, he says there's three uses of the law. This, uh, it's like a curb. It's like a mirror and it's like a guide. So the law is a curb. It's a mirror, and it's a guide, okay? And, and the curb is what we've talked about a lot over the last year from the pulpit here. When we talk about restraining things that God has, has put in our world and in our lives so that we, we can all play in the sandbox together, the law does that. That's why it's often referred to as the moral law. So it's not just for believers, or it wasn't just for Israelites ultimately. It was something that actually everybody on earth could benefit from as far as being able to live peaceably with the people next to them, right? 
It's the, the, the law does that for everybody. In this land, once upon a time, in every courtroom, you used to walk in, and the first thing you would see is the Ten Commandments. It let us know that there's some checks and balances. There's a curb on some things. Like, you can't just go over here and take your, 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 your neighbor's wife, right? And he can't just come over here and take your car because he likes it. Like, there's going to be a price to pay. There's a law that we all need to abide by, and that's the first use of the law morally. It kind of it keeps the bumpers up. On, on, on the bowling lane, you know, so that our ball hits the pins and not someone else's, just ours, right? Then there's a, that it's a mirror. What do, what do mirrors do? What do we use mirrors for? To look at ourselves, right? Which the older I get, a mirror shows us us, right? And the law is a mirror. It shows us us. Unfortunately, it's in a negative term because we don't match up to what we're looking at. So there's things, there's all kinds of things that you and I see when we look into that mirror where we're like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Right? Some of you do that when you look into a real mirror. I do that now. Right? So it's, it's a mirror. It shows us us. It shows us how we fail or how we have failed, where our blemishes are, where our weaknesses are, which then crushes us. And accuses us of our own sin and guilt, which is how we see Jesus using it here in this place, in this language. He's using it as a mirror that we might look at it and go, dude, I like this is terrible. This is horrible. Right. And then the third one is that it's a guide. And this one's a little bit argued. I don't think it's an argument, meaning that once we're regenerated, once the spirit of God has moved on us and we've been born again and we have the Spirit living in us, we can now start to desire the things that God desires rather than hate them all. So now we can look at something like the law, not to be saved by or to gauge how well we're doing, but to go, oh, this is what righteousness looks like. I want to chase after this. It becomes a lamp and it becomes a light to our path once regenerated, right? So those are kind of the three uses. Um, but what Jesus is doing today is he's, he's showing us our need with that use of the law, the mirror um, for righteousness outside of ourselves. Um, it, sh- it shows us our need for a better law keeper than us. And, and, the, and the world has one. The world has one. His name is Jesus. He's the, he, he is the law keeper. And he's the only hope that any of us have of abiding by the law fully and completely. How? By his imputation, by him gifting us with his 100% test score. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like we need him to take the test for us, and he did. And all who call upon his name by faith get his test score and then become right before God. Jesus took the test, he passed it, and he let us use his score by faith. This is the necessity of the law. This is the necessity of the law, and it's the seriousness of the law. So listen to this. When you, when you um, share with people, I don't care if it's family members, um, I don't know if it's, it's coworkers, um, it, it, whatever. When you go to share with somebody, law first, then gospel. Law first, then gospel. Law first because it kills, then gospel, gospel because it saves. This is this again. Jesus is the architect. This isn't on accident that everything comes in the sequence it comes in. It's on purpose. We need the law. 
so that people will see their need for a Savior. Right? You're far worse than you think you are. Law. But you are far more loved by God than you ever thought you could be. Gospel. That's not mine, by the way. Just a quote that I love. In fact, I can't find who it belongs to because all the guys in the evangelical circles claim it as their own. So there's like, tw- there's like 20, there's like 20 dudes out there like, yeah, that's mine. They put their name on it. I don't know whose it is, but it's fantastic. Listen to it. You are far worse than you think you are, but you are far more loved by God than you thought you could be. Law, gospel. We, we wouldn't have any kind of understanding, weight, value, meaning of the second part of that quote, uh, if it wasn't for the first part. Like, who cares about the second part if we don't believe the first part? We are far worse, just like Jesus showed us today, than we think we are. But praise be to God through Jesus Christ. We have a God that loves us far more than we thought he ever could. That's the cross, the resurrection. If you don't know that, it's here for you today by faith. Justification happens through faith, and it can happen right in your chair, right where you sit doing business with God and saying, God, save me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. A poor sinner, a wretch who has broken your law and rebelled against your righteousness. Lord, thank you so much for your text. I thank you that you shoot straight with the people who need to be shot straight with, especially me. I thank you that, that you don't lie, but you, you, you tell it like it is so that we may know what needs to be done. And we thank you, Lord, that you've taken care of what needed to be done. We thank you that you fulfilled the law to the full extent, completely, fully, every every detail. We thank you that you've then decided that by the price you paid, you would gift that to people such as us. I do not get it. I do not understand how you can love me that way. But I, but I receive it by faith, God, and I thank you. I'll thank you through eternity for it. And so we just praise you today once more um, for, for maybe helping us see a little better uh, how bad our deficit is and how great your righteousness is. And it's, it's in that that we worship. It's, it's in Jesus' name we pray and that we are saved. Amen.